Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Today we have a terrific opportunity to speak with Dr. Jennifer A. Frontera, MD. She is the lead author of an article that will be published in the July 2011 issue of Critical Care Medicine, the title of which is National Trend in Prevalence, Cost, and Discharge Disposition After Subdural Hematoma from 1998 to 2007. Dr. Frontera is an assistant professor of neurology and neurosurgery at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York City, and she's also director of the Neuroscience ICU at Mount Sinai Hospital. The citation for this article is Critical Care Medicine, 2011, Volume 39, Number 7. Uh, again, thank you so much, Dr. Frontera, for being part of the SCCM podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, before I get into it, I wanted to make a couple uh, just sort of uh, points from my perspective about why I chose to speak with you and how excited I am about having this opportunity. And this particular article is, is as someone who works primarily in neurosurgical ICUs for almost a decade now, I was very excited to see this topic because, as you point out in the article, um, in general, when I hear that I've got another patient coming in with a subdural hematoma, either not having had surgery or having had surgery, in general, they should do better. In general, they're usually not as complex to manage as a patient with an aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. But the point there was that what is the actual burden, both economically and um, clinically, to our country with these patients? And that's why I was so excited to see a formal academic analysis uh, of this understudied disease. So thank you so much for doing it, and thank you for letting us speak to you about it. I'm happy to, I'm happy to be here. So uh, what I wanted to begin with was trying to uh, explain a little bit about the, your study design and then let you take it from there. You did a a retrospective cohort study looking at what you describe as the nationwide inpatient sample of 720,297 adult patients hospitalized from 1998 to 2007, and then you focused in on their discharge disposition. And I was wondering if you could take a few minutes and talk about how do you like know to get that kind of a database, and how do you start to decide what kinds of questions you can ask and answer with a database of that kind? Okay, sure. If I may, I wanted to tell the listeners a little bit about why we felt subdural hemorrhage was such an important Yes, no, please. That would be terrific. And you sort of alluded to it already, but uh, subdural hemorrhage is very, very understudied. There's a lot of national resources and publications and grants that are focused on subarachnoid hemorrhage, intracerebral hemorrhage, uh, ischemic stroke, but there's very few studies or grants that are actually directed towards subdural hemorrhage as an entity. So there's management guidelines for subdural hemorrhage that come from the Brain Trauma Foundation, but all of this is class three evidence because there simply isn't that much data to work with. Most of the literature focuses on acute subdural hemorrhage as a subclass of traumatic brain injury, but there's really very little literature that looks at subacute or chronic subdural hemorrhage. That being said, the risk factors for subdural hemorrhage are increasing in the United States as our population ages. And so we have more patients taking anticoagulants and antiplatelets. There's a higher incidence of AFib in an older population. And also, the rates of dementia increase. So over the last decade, there's been an increase in patients, people over age 65, from about 33 million to 37 million. 
and the dementia rates have also gone up. And with that, there's more cerebral atrophy and more risk for subdural hemorrhage. So we we're thinking that probably we're going to see an increase in prevalence, and we're actually surprised that we saw the prevalence go up as much as it has. And to my knowledge, there hasn't been a publication examining the epidemiology of acute, subacute, and chronic subdural hemorrhage since 1975. So we really wanted to look at nationwide trends in the prevalence of subdural hemorrhage, but also look at its management, cost, and clinical outcomes. So as you mentioned, we, we did this retrospective study and we captured about 720,000 adult patients between 1998 and 2007, looking at subdural hemorrhage with, of all chronicities, including acute, subacute, and chronic subdural hemorrhage. The nationwide inpatient sample is what we used. It's a large, prospectively collected national database that tracks hospital discharges from 1,044 hospitals in 40 states. So this constitutes a 20% sample of U.S. hospitals. So. There are some limitations of the nationwide inpatient sample that I want to sort of point out before we go any further. And the one that a lot of people like to mention is that it relies on ICD-9 codes to track diagnoses and procedures. And a lot of people point out that there's questionable accuracy of these ICD-9 codes because coding practices can change over time and not everything may be captured. But there's been a panoply of studies that have emerged from the nationwide inpatient sample and been published in highly esteemed journals such as New England Journal and JAMA, et cetera. And to try to address some of the concerns about ICD-9 coding, we actually looked at the sensitivity, specificity, positive predictive value, and negative predictive value of the ICD-9 codes we used to identify subdural hemorrhage in our study compared to the gold standard of CT-proven subdural hemorrhage. So when we looked at our own institutional data from 2001 to 2008, we actually found a 70% sensitivity, 100% specificity, 94% positive predictive value, and 100% negative predictive value for these ICD-9 codes. So if anything, the sensitivity is a little bit low. So if we were to extrapolate the sensitivities of these ICD-9 codes to the um, NIS database, the Nationwide Inpatient Sample Database, we might actually be underestimating the subdural hemorrhage prevalence. So um, overall, it looks like we have you know, a real increase in subdural hemorrhage based on this study, and in fact, it may be worse than what we're finding here. And I remember um, some one of the points you brought up before before we move on about the um, the atrial fibrillation and, and Coumadin. From an internal medicine perspective, we get lots and lots of discussions how we're underutilizing it, but then as someone now who practices only ICU medicine and only seeing the downsides of it, it can be, uh, it's, it's a dangerous disease, and, and hopefully, I guess, with some of the new anticoagulants coming out, maybe that uh, particular contribution hopefully will go down. I hope so. It's going to be very interesting, and this is sort of an aside, to see what happens with direct thrombin inhibitors and oral uh, low molecular weight heparin because it's simply it's quite difficult to reverse those, or no one really knows how to properly reverse the newer generation anticoagulants. So it's going to be very interesting to see what happens with intracranial hemorrhage as an entity in general um, when people start using these new anticoagulants more in the future. So that'll give you your paper for the next 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> Um, um, the, the, that sort of leads into our next point, which I'll, I'll talk a little bit about and then let you take it uh, from there, where you talk about that the rates of hospitalizations for this disease went up, and you particularly point out the various uh, risk factors for developing this disease in Talking Point 2, if you want to talk about that. Sure, sure. So um, we found overall that subdural hemorrhage hospitalizations increased from about 59,000, that's 30 per 100,000 capita in 1998, to 
roughly 92,000 or 42 per 100,000 capita in 2007. So that translates to a 55% increase in total hospitalizations and a 39% per capita increase over the decade. And that was very statistically significant. So, you know, one something we thought might be at play is maybe there's a diagnosis bias, maybe more people are doing head CTs, but we actually looked at this and we found that the percentage of head CTs being performed among trauma patients over that decade had actually decreased significantly from 4.4% to 2.4%. Well, conversely, the proportion of subdural hemorrhages among trauma patients increased from 1.5 to 1.9%. So it's not just that we're doing more head CTs. The actual prevalence is increasing. We then decided we were going to look at the subdural hemorrhage patients in 1998 compared to 2007 to see how they were different, like what was the difference in demographics, medical social history, clinical presentation, and if there were changes in surgical intervention. And per capita, we found that subdural hemorrhage increased across all age groups, but that octogenarians and older patients by far had the highest prevalence of subdural hemorrhage. So, for example, in 2007, people over age 80 had a prevalence of subdural hemorrhage of 286 per 100,000 capita. That's compared to a prevalence of 13.2 per 100,000 in those under age 60. The uh, prevalence of antiplatin and anticoagulant use among subdural hemorrhage patients also increased, as we were sort of predicting. That happened over the decade. And um, there's also an increase in low-income individuals um, among subarachnoid hemorrhage patients, and there probably is some collinearity between being older and having lower income. And so uh, just to, to reinterpret it and summarize it, so, so the big picture is that the clinical burden of this disease, to the extent that it can be analyzed, appears to be going up and going up significantly, right? That's correct. And so one of the issues sort of as a... As a policy for the country would be, are any of these uh, sort of either reversible or preventable uh, in terms of why this incidence is going up, right? Well, you know, it's interesting. We found a significant increase in trauma, and by that, particularly accidental falls. The uh, incidence of MVA, motor vehicle accidents, didn't increase, but more people were falling. And so that's certainly preventable, and we know that's a major initiative amongst hospitals. So um, that might be an area to target, and particularly amongst patients who are receiving antiplatelets or anticoagulants. One of the things I'd like to do for the next part of the talk, and you can feel free to spend sort of a, a large chunk of your time talking about this because I uh, had to run this over and over in my head quite a bit to understand this because I think it's really important, this conundrum of that the mortality is going down, but the percentage of both unsatisfactory and satisfactory discharges appear to be going up. And it seems to me, trying to understand it, that what we're doing is you're taking people, fewer of them are dying, and you'd like that line on your figure two uh, of the bad outcomes to be either flat or going down, uh, I guess would be the big picture on that. And and um, the other point I'd like to summarize before I let you say it is the way you defined it was if you came in with a subdural hematoma, one of three things could happen. You would either die, you would have what you considered a good outcome, which is either that you were discharged home or rehab, or a bad, unsatisfactory discharge to SNF or hospice. So with that as background, I thought I'd let you uh, flesh that out a right. little bit. Yeah. So this is you know, a concerning finding. And within the field of neuroscience in general, we worry most about developing technology and treatments that may save someone's life, but not preserve a good quality of life. So what probably is a worst case scenario is that you don't die, but you're actually have uh, are vegetative or, or uh, chronically disabled in a nursing home. And so exactly as you said, we found that mortality decreased from 15% to 12% over the, the decade. And then unsatisfactory discharge actually increased by an equal percentage from 17 to 20 percent. 
And, you know, so, of course, we ask ourselves, are we saving patients only to populate the nursing homes, which is not what we're trying to do? Um, and this poses additional societal costs since over 70% of the patients in this study had Medicare or Medicaid, so that a lot of the post-hospitalization costs, which we couldn't even quantify in this study, a lot of the fiscal burden for caring for those patients post-hospitalization would fall on the taxpayer. So there's really um, a huge fiscal um, issue at stake here. We did find that good discharge disposition increased from 35% to 46% over the time frame, and so that is an encouraging finding, but the... Um, are the patients that who would previously have died actually being saved but going to nursing homes is what's really concerning. When we did a multivariate analysis, we found that older age, uh, antiplatelet and anticoagulant use, dementia, alcohol use, trauma, and higher comorbidity index predicted the worst outcomes, meaning death or unsatisfactory discharge disposition. And as you might expect, being younger and um, actually being hospitalized later in the study EPIC and having burhole drainage were associated with better outcomes. So we, you know, I think overall we have to drill down prospectively on, you know, exactly what's going on here and which patients are benefiting from our medical and surgical interventions in order to really sort of improve these outcomes. And so the, the uh, again, your this kind of a manuscript very quickly lends itself to a discussion of policy issues. And so I would ask you sort of as a discussion, so uh, academically, then one might say, okay, fine, we really have to look at that group of patients. So A, it's good that the mortality is going down. But as you point out, we don't want it to have gone down and created a group of patients who are in some sort of either vegetative state or requiring long-term care with a sort of objective poor quality of life. And, and those, I would imagine, would be the pa kinds of patients that you would want to focus in on and look backwards to say, should there have been a decision as to either intervention on, on a patient like that or, or that kind of thing, right? Right. The only caveat I should add here is that we, because of how the NIS is structured, we looked at discharge disposition as a surrogate for neurological outcome. Right. So, um, you know, in neuro cases in general, no matter what kind of brain injury there is, most patients make their maximal recovery over the first three months. So discharge disposition is really not giving us a long enough time frame to truly understand if maybe some of these patients continue to improve over the next few months and maybe it's not looking as grim as it, as it is just based on death and discharge disposition. So this is where I think really a prospective study would be important in terms of flushing out what exactly is going on here. I think we've identified an issue and it just needs to be really further studied. Well, actually, I think this is a good segue into our next talking point, which is neurosurgical intervention in these patients. And uh, again, what I think is fascinating and, and jives with my clinical experience is that the overall neurosurgical uh, rate of interventions went down. But as you point out, and I thought fascinatingly, that the neurosurgical interventions uh, didn't protect against a poor discharge disposition, and as you point out, were the single most concerning factor associated with cost, if you'd like to talk about that. Yeah. This is, you know, I was surprised because with the prevalence going up as much as it did, we really thought that there would be more surgeries as well. But in fact, both burhole drainage, which is typically used for chronic and subacute subdural hemorrhage, and craniotomy, which we use for acute subdural hemorrhage, both went down over the study period from about 41% in 1998 to 31% in 2007, and this is a very significant decrease. And we were wondering maybe if this meant that more patients were being admitted with subacute or chronic subdural hemorrhage and not undergoing surgery, 
But, you know, the, the, dec- the slope of the decline of both burr hole and craniotomy drainage was similar. So they're both types of surgeries are going down. And also, there was no difference in frequency of elective versus emergent admissions, assuming that the acute subdural hemorrhage patients would be more emergently admitted and require emergency surgery. Um, you know, we don't have access to review the CT scans from the NIS, and so we really can't make any assumptions about changes in different types of subdural hemorrhage over the time period. Um, What's possible is that neurosurgical practice may have changed. So a lot of literature did come out in the last decade showing that the post-operative recurrence rate after subdural hemorrhage drainage is as high as 30%. And so this data may have persuaded some surgeons from operating at all in the first place. The alternative hypothesis is that neurosurgical technique actually improved over the decade, and there was reduced subdural hemorrhage recurrence rates over time, and so for less reoperative uh, cases and then overall lower surgical rate. Right. Um, there's also recent literature saying um, about using drains with burr hole drainage of subacute and chronic uh, subdural hemorrhages, that that actually reduces recurrence rates. And so this practice may have changed over the time frame, and that may account for lower surgical rates. But, you know, when we looked at discharge disposition in multivariate analysis, as you had sort of mentioned before, after adjusting for other factors, we found that um, though both craniotomy and burr hole drainage did protect against death, only burr hole drainage was predictive of a good discharge disposition, and the odds ratio was quite small. It was only 1.1. Neither of the types of surgery protected against poor discharge disposition. One you know, limitation of NIS is that we can't really adjust for neurological severity at the time of presentation. So we have no measurement of how they look neurologically, like a Glasgow uh, coma scale or an NIH stroke scale or anything like that. So we can't tell if these patients are sicker neurologically over time or how they look uh, over the time epoch. And I, you know, I have to evoke again the fact that we're looking at discharge disposition as a surrogate for real neurological and cognitive markers, which we would optimally get at three months or 12 months after. So um, even though it's looking like, you know, neurosurgery may not be protective against poor discharge disposition, it's hard to say how these patients would do over the longer term. And, uh, you know, I, th- I think neurosurgical intervention is a mainstay of subdural hemorrhage treatment, but it'd be really nice to find predictors of which patients are most likely to benefit from surgical intervention and which type of surgical intervention is most appropriate, depending on the chronicity of the blood. And um, so just a couple of thoughts I had uh, with you talking right now is, so again, it's good that the overall mortality is going down. Um, it sounds like I would imagine the other issue would be sort of patient selection, as you pointed out, that the neurosurgeons are getting better at figuring out who really needs an intervention and if it can be avoided and the patient can write it out without one, uh, they may be better off sort of situation, right? Possibly. I mean, I mean another possibility is they're operating less and maybe, you know, some of the patients that are going to the the nursing home have cognitive disability that prevents them from having a better discharge disposition. Right. I mean, that's another possibility, I suppose. One of the other questions I had was um, just from a purely neurological standpoint. You were saying that there, this happens a lot in the elderly, and in general, they sort of have they do have more space for a subdural collection to accumulate, and is is that make the the need to emergently operate less in general the older you are? If you want to talk about just sort of physiologically for a second. Well, I mean, if you have atrophy, you may not have as much mass effect and shift from the subdural hemorrhage. That doesn't really speak to the cognitive effects that having a a fluid collection there might 
have on a, a patient, be, whether they have atrophy or not. Okay. Um, so it's hard to really... Uh, they may be more that. sensitive, right, although they may be able to tolerate it looking at a CAT scan, whether they can tolerate it from a neurocognitive standpoint, you're saying, right? Right. They may be able to tolerate it radiographically. <laughs> okay. But, you know, that... Uh, you know, I'm not sure. We're, what we're do, we actually looked retrospectively at a cohort of about 216 patients at our hospital between 2001 and 2008, and uh, what we had was primarily subacute and chronic subdural hemorrhages. So 44% were subacute, 12% chronic, and 30% were mixed. So very few had acute in this cohort. And um, in this study, the median GCS for our patients was 14, which is pretty good. You know, knowing that GCS doesn't really capture some cognitive subtleties, but the mortality rate for our cohort was 13%, which we thought was disproportionate to how they looked when they came in. Right. And our poor discharge disposition rate was 20%. These, these numbers are very similar to what we found in the NIS. Right. And we looked at um, predictors of death or poor discharge disposition, and in our little cohort, we found age, worse admission GCS, and longer length of stay predicted uh, worst discharge disposition or death. Uh, well, actually, subdural size, which might be a radiographic measure, as you're alluding to, chronicity and uh, surgical intervention were really not associated with discharge disposition in the smaller cohort. They actually weren't associated with length of stay or cost. And in the small cohort, only the only predictive cost was length of stay. Now, in the NIS cohort, the biggest predictive cost was surgical intervention. Right. Um, so it becomes, you know, fiscally, economically important for us to identify which patients are going to do best with surgery. And we're actually, we're doing a, co a prospective cohort study right now where we're enrolling sub subdural hemorrhage patients and trying to exactly do this, predict which patients benefit most from surgery, what predicts recurrence rates, and we're looking at functional outcome at three months and 12 months. And so we're hoping that we'll be able to shed some light on what the best ways are to manage sub subdural hemorrhage patients moving forward. So I, I was going to sort of wrap things up, and, and my big question for you, given the fact, and I'm just going to reemphasize it, is you talk about the national cost of $1.6 billion for caring for these right. patients. I would think that somebody like you is is already pushing for there to be the kind of national granular database for subdural hematomas so that you can try and answer some of these questions, right? It would seem that it would make fiscal sense to the country to, to try and figure this out, right? Right. That's a great point. I think... Consortium studies, particularly among the neurosciences, are really starting to take off. There's consortium studies looking at rarer diseases like status epilepticus. Uh, one thing we're lucky with subdural hemorrhage is it's not that rare, as we showed in this paper. Right. Um, and so if, even if you had a small consortium, you could probably generate a fair amount of data relatively quickly that would help us guide management. So I think that's a really great idea. And and I would imagine, I mean, are you obviously, when you need to, you would collaborate with sort of key neurosurgeons, and I would, I would think it would make your life easier because I, there is some sort of uh, stable agreement about the particular types of neurosurgical intervention. It's not like they're still doing sort of fundamental randomized trials of the particular types of interventions on these kinds of patients, or, or are they? No, I mean, I think the most surgeons will do a burr hole drainage for chronic or subacute um, subdural hemorrhage. Whether or not you interrupt the membranes is something we're looking at um, because you can have rebleeding and recurrence when you disrupt all the membranes. 
Sometimes you can't actually evacuate it unless you disrupt the membranes. It's really, you know, there are nuances to the surgical technique that really aren't known. Right. And there's a lot of operators who do things slightly differently. Um, craniotomies, uh, acute subdural hemorrhage, evacuation, that's been much more studied. There's clear guidelines from the AANS and the Brain Trauma Foundation about what to do with acute subdural hemorrhage. I think that's a lot more clear-cut than what to do with mixed chronicity and subacute and chronic. And frankly, at least in our institutional cohort, we're seeing a lot more subacute and chronic. And I think there's a lot of questions about whether to operate in the first place on these patients. And then if you do, what type of surgery should you do? You could also do a cookie-cutter craniotomy as opposed to a large craniotomy. There's, there are different surgical options. And there's no guidelines, actually. There's no uh, societal guidelines on what to do with subacute or chronic. For acute subdural hemorrhage, as I mentioned, there's clear-cut guidelines. Most people do, you know, the same type of surgery on the acute subdural hemorrhages. I think we really would like to drill down on what to do with these other groups, which is what we're looking at mostly with the elderly patients. Well, again, just to emphasize the point that I did from the beginning, I was really looking forward to this opportunity. These are patients I care for, and and as you pointed out, there's a lot of surgeon preference and uh, getting a more evidence-based approach to these kinds of patients who are clearly, as you've pointed out in great detail, a large clinical and increasing clinical burden and a significant economic burden to our country. I very much tip my hat to you, and I'm grateful for your time today. We've been speaking with Dr. Jennifer A. Frontera. She is the director of the Neuroscience ICU at the Mount Sinai Hospital and assistant professor of neurology and neurosurgery at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. And we've been discussing with her her manuscript uh, that will be published in July 2011 in Critical Care Medicine, the title of which is National Trend in Prevalence, Cost, and Discharge Disposition After Subdural Hematoma from 1998 to 2007. Thank you so much, Dr. Frontera, for being here. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information, as well as access to over five years of archived podcasts. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. SCCM offers regularly scheduled, thought-provoking webcasts on cutting-edge topics within critical care. Webcast participants will receive continuing education credit and have the convenience of attending from their hospitals, offices, or homes. Visit www.sccm.org webcasts for details. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co-Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.